Welcome back to Ford Momentum. It's official. Danny Rick is no longer driving for McLaren. I will miss Ricardo, but can't wait to see what happens now with the Piastri signing and where they go from here. I'm sure there's a lot more silly to come before we resume racing this weekend in Belgium at Spa. This week on Ford Momentum, we're going to talk about the drivers as aspirational characters, the world of F1 and its parallels in the luxury world, and that just the curated aura of Formula One, and how F1 can kind of parallel the watch market. My name is Todd Searle. I'm obsessed with watches. I pay attention to them everywhere I see them. One place I've been surprised to see them frequently is in the cockpit of Formula One cars. I'm a crazed Formula One fan, and I keep noticing watch brands sponsoring cars, races, and I kept seeing them pop up on drivers' wrists. I wanted to understand why watch brands lean so heavily on the world of motorsport. This is Forward Momentum, where we explore the interconnection between watches and the world of motorsport, luxury goods, gear, and the creators behind those brands. Welcome to Forward Momentum. Netflix's Drive to Survive brought many new fans to the sport. Most people got a look at the sport that they'd never even considered watching before. Many non-fans quickly became fans, and it wasn't the racing that interested them. It was the behind-the-scenes access, the politics, the ins and outs of running a Formula One team. Drive to Survive gave people an up-close look at what it takes to deliver and win in Formula One. While Drive to Survive highlights the dramas and the politicking that occurs, I think the most important thing is that it taught people about how the teams are set up and that only 20 Grand Prix drivers exist. That 20-seat limit creates some of the natural drama and tension that makes F1 what it is. Hence what we're seeing with Daniel Ricciardo and Oscar Piastri. As a driver, you always want to do your best race to race. But you also always want to beat your teammate. Your teammate is your greatest rival in the sport because they're the only other person on track that has the same car as you, the same equipment, and you want to show up by beating them in every qualifying session and every race. It is for that reason that so many drivers are ruthless. They play head games, they compete on and off the track. They're not only some of the best drivers in the world, but they are themselves brands. They bring sponsor dollars. And with those sponsor dollars come opportunities and a chance to keep racing in the pinnacle of motorsport. Racing is what makes us human. F1 drivers want to be immortal. There are many human elements to the story. There's a story of marketing. Sure, there's a story of luxury. There's sponsorship dollars at stake. And why do we care as a society about sport in general, specifically about motorsport? These are kids who range somewhere between 18 and 41 years old driving these cars. They have panache and they have style. They're living an F1 lifestyle. They live in Monaco. They have everything provided them. They fly around the world on private jets. They're racing in 23 races a year. And they themselves have become these aspirational characters. Luxury as a concept, there could be watches or handbags or clothing, anything like this. I think at the fundamental meaning of the word to me 
luxury objects don't just provide means to an end. They, they really serve to elevate experiences and emotions. emotions. You know, if that makes it, that makes sense. So you have like a cheaper car, like a, like a Toyota Camry, which is perfectly good and reliable and get you where you need to go. There's nothing wrong with that. But when you have a luxury car, like a, a Rolls Royce or a Ferrari or, or something like that, when you're driving that car, it's about the journey along the way. So the, the kind of vibration you feel when you push the pedal, the, you feel like the materials, the wood steering wheel, the nice leather, it really stimulates the senses. It's more than just getting from point A to point B. I think going a bit further than that, luxury object needs to at least some capacity to be handmade. Something that's mass produced or made by machines, again, doesn't have that same kind of feeling to the touch. It doesn't just evoke that same kind of feeling of quality and wow factor. When you talk about watches and motorsport or watches and, and sports in general, there's definitely a connection between man and mechanical objects. Going to one year object, one year watch rather, putting those gears turned at the beginning and bringing that watch to life. That, that's really exciting. It's not just a watch nerd thing. I think even like a kid who for the first time, you know, wanting a pocket wall true or solder or something like that. It, it's exciting. And then when you're measuring events, whether it be motorsport or a basketball game or a tennis match, in the early days before these courts and battery-operated computerized devices, it had to be mechanical, right? So in motorsport, the early days, we're looking at Jaeger making components for Jaguar instrument panels, things like that, which we still see in vintage cars today. And then diving sports, watches being worn and swimming across English Channel for Rolex, things like that. I think it just goes hand in hand where you need to measure or record these kind of events, these milestones. If it weren't for mechanical watches, there'd just be no records in sporting to this degree. So I really think that it's born out of necessity, so to speak. Those folks watching Formula One want to evoke that sense of elevating the experience of watching Formula One, whether they do that wearing a Paul Newman Rolex Daytona, a Tag Heuer Monaco, or a Richard Meal, as worn by so many of the drivers on the grid today. These watches elevate the experience and make you feel like you're actually a participant in Formula One. And I think there's a very interesting reflection of what we care about as a society in sport, and that is reflected back to us. What we want are these David and Goliath stories. We want battles. We want to see people pushing themselves to the fullest extent, pushing the car to the fullest limits as spectators. You want to see people pushing limits. You want to see an underdog story. You want to see Pierre Gasly win at Monza. You want to see Lance Stroll take a podium in Monza too. You want to see George Russell subbing for Lewis Hamilton at the Secure Grand Prix win the race in Lewis Hamilton's car. Spoiler alert, Russell didn't, and it was heartbreaking. But this human element is such a reflection of what we care about our competitiveness, and our nature. It's really these things that tell us about our status and what they portray to others. And I think there's an interesting point in the watch world too, because many collectors collect not for the watches, they collect for the stories, they collect for themselves, they collect for this image that they're curating about themselves. And Formula One does an amazing job of curating an aura and a look and a style for their particular drivers. Ming Thien, 
writer, photographer, F1 part component designer, and founder of the eponymous watch brand Ming, help me understand this further. It's the choice. I mean, the, the point is going back to, the, I mean, to bring the story to the, bring it out to close. I mean, it's, it's really about the choice. So yeah. I, I think a lot of people don't know what they want, even if they see it, or they're afraid to take it because they're afraid of what everybody else is going to say. And I think it's very, it's going to be very hard to find somebody who says, um, I'm buying something because only I want to, I don't care what other people think. Like it or not, Richard Mill is successful because not just of the association. I mean, the association is part of it. I mean, the, the F1 association, motorsport association is part of it. But I think a lot of it is because you can recognize the damn thing across the room. Yeah, and absolutely. If the F1 guys are wearing it, then everybody knows that, oh, you have an F1 watch. You know, that's the kind of, that's the kind of weird psychology that goes with it. It's clear from talking to Meng that as we look at Formula One fans aiming to feel like a Grand Prix driver, it's clear that the Grand Prix drivers, the F1 drivers, are heroes not just on the track, but also in the Drive to Survive series and in life. I'd like to get to the bottom of the, the drivers as style icons. Is there stylists choosing what they wear? Is there someone telling them they have to dress a certain way, look a certain way, perform a certain way? I'm curious about what this says about the F1 lifestyle and what that reflects about us as human beings and about society. Drivers themselves have really become style icons. They're not only walking billboards as the car is, they're style icons off the track too, and they're living that aspirational lifestyle. And I find that fascinating. I think because of this aspirational luxury lifestyle, it gets people interested. But is that the whole story? There's a parallel to the watch industry here. If you look at the watch industry and competition between companies to come up with new patents, new ingenious ideas, and new movements, there is really a competition, but the smaller, singular, focused, independent brands wouldn't be able to exist without brands like Rolex in the world. And as Max Busser said it, he said it best. Yes, again, let's not forget that what we do is pointless. So what we do has to be perfect. Liberty Media. We can't talk about F1 without talking about the group that owns the property of Formula One. That is Liberty Media. They are an investment group headed by John Malone, and they acquired Formula One in 2017. And they've been competing for market share in the U.S., against more dominant sporting series and racing series. A March 22, 2021 article in the Financial Times entitled Formula One's New Chief Looks to Make Inroads in the U.S. by Samuel Ajini and Murad Ahmed points out, Cracking the U.S. is crucial for F1's plans to recover following the pandemic. In 2020, annual revenues fell more than 40% on year to $1.1 billion, resulting in an operating loss of $444 million as F1 was forced to hold a shorter season than the usual at 17 races. This season, which starts in Bahrain on March 28th, a record 23 races are scheduled. In part of that content strategy to reach a broader audience in the United States, more racing in the U.S., aside from the Grand Prix of the United States at the Circuit of the Americas in Austin, Texas, bringing F1 to Miami in 2022 and Vegas in 2023, but a tight deal with Netflix produced Drive to Survive. 
it's really a reality TV show version of what happens on track. And as The Drive's Hazel Southwell points out, and Formula One, Drive to Survive is, in that respect, an entertainment show. It's gossip, it's a little behind-the-scenes glimpse into a sport full of huge characters, and it all works perfectly for that. From my perspective, what Drive to Survive does, however, is expose new fans to the drama of F1, while maybe practicing more than a little misdirection. For some, it serves as a recap of the season, something to draw us in, remind us what happened last year, and prepare us for the coming season. For some, it serves as a primer to the sport and helps bring them into watching racing on a weekly basis. There are some hardcore fans who ignore Drive to Survive entirely, relying on media coverage of F1, because after all, Drive to Survive is a reality show that brings in a little drama that maybe didn't quite happen in the way it was portrayed in the show. The series has been called out by many eagle-eyed F1 fans who point out the factual inaccuracies where perhaps radio was used in a different video clip from when it was actually said and edited to present a story in a certain light, not in the way it actually happened. It's interesting as a fan to see this, but the show is still so fun to watch that you could just about forget about the artificial drama that's created. What is interesting to me is how many people choose to consume Formula One. Forbes's Christian Silt covered Formula One in 2019 and discovered some interesting statistics about F1's viewership. And I quote, F1's global research director, Matt Roberts, said, the average age of a global F1 viewer is 40. 14% are under 25. 30% are 25 to 34. 20% are 35 to 44. 20% are 45 to 54 and 17% are over 55. The average age is higher in more established markets like the UK, Italy, and Germany, whilst it is younger in newer F1 markets like USA and China. That biggest market share being ages 25 to 44 actually makes sense to me. Who wouldn't want to be a racing car driver with the possibility to write your name into the history books and the amazing contracts that drivers get? Silk goes on to point out that streaming and social media presence is a huge focus of Liberty Media and F1. When considered, the Netflix partnership makes even more sense. One thing that is really interesting to me is the way in which F1 describes their viewership. As one media executive told us in an article for Motoring Magazine Auto Week, Formula One's audience is older, it's wealthier, it's very sophisticated. But while they love technology in Formula One, they don't want to watch it on their phones or their iPads or their computers. They want to watch it on a big screen. The older and wealthier viewing audience actually makes sense for watch brands to be participating in this market and marketing to clientele during F1 Grand Prix races. They have disposable income to spend on a new watch, and I think there's a, another part of this equation. Given the average age of F1's audience, I think that people want to feel young. They want to feel like that F1 driver. They want to feel like the star driver walking down the paddock before a race. Strapping on the same watch may just give you that feeling. It won't reverse aging, but it might help you feel like a Grand Prix driver. In terms of the watch market and the partnership with Netflix, there's another strategic partnership that really stood out to me, and that is a strategic partnership with Rolex and it came before the Liberty Media takeover of Formula One. 
Quoting that same article from Forbes written by Christian Silt, over the decade to the end of 2016, F1 sponsorship revenue rose from 49.7% to 262 million. It made the greatest gain in 2013 when Rolex and Emirates joined and boosted F1 sponsorship tally by $53.4 million. The two brands actually paid even more than that. They show that when they joined in 2013, Rolex paid an estimated $40 million. Josh Rolovitz, a friend of mine and director of trading at Watchbox Hong Kong, helped me understand this further. Drive to Survive highlights that they are massive talents behind the wheel, which is no small feat, but that they are also human. And that human side of the story often gets overlooked. These drivers aren't superhuman. They've actually had a long and very competitive road to get to Formula One. The road to Formula One begins at a young age, usually single digits. The drivers usually begin in go-karts to get a feel for racing and tracks. And from there, if they're serious, they continue to race, progressing from local to national and an international level. By and large, if the drivers are competitive in the local, national, and then international circuit, they end up competing in Europe. And that's a tremendous commitment to lifestyle change. It means giving up on hopes and dreams in support of your children, sending them off to Europe if you don't live in Europe, on their own at a young age to continue racing, training, and developing as drivers. It's a huge commitment not only for a seven, eight, nine, ten year old to make, but also for their families to make. The Federation Internationale de l'Automobile, or FIA, the global governing body of motorsport racing, is based in Paris and provides governance and licensing for drivers in Formula One. World Rally Championship, World Endurance Championship, World Touring Car Cup, World Rally Cross Championship, and various other forms of racing. The FIA has established a, quote, global pathway from karting to Formula One that many drivers can use to follow and figure out how to build their career to work towards Formula One. The series progresses from Tier 4 to Tier 1. In Tier 4, drivers can compete in CIK FIA Karting World Championship or CIK FIA Karting Continental Championships. Again, requiring that drivers and their families live in Europe to compete. In Tier 3, drivers compete either at the FIA Formula 4 Championship, the National Formula 3 Championships, or Formula Renault 2.0. From there, if they have the skills and the talents, they progress to Tier 2, racing in the FIA European Formula 3 Championship, GP3 Series, Super Formula, Indy Lights, also part of the Road to Indy program, and again, if the drivers possess the talent, skills, and the requisite sponsorship dollars, they progress to Tier 1, usually through FIA Formula 2 World Championship. Young drivers could also compete in the World Series Formula V8 3.5, which would be an acceptable alternative to F2. And it's during this time that young drivers really begin accumulating points towards their FIA Super License that allows them to compete in Formula 1. There are many ways to achieve those points, but the simplest way includes 300 kilometers of testing in a recent F1 car and spending two years in junior racing levels. Tricky thing about Formula 2 is if you win Formula 2, you can't compete in the championship again, so you need to progress into Formula 1. So you either have to be a massive talent with a team that is ready to sign you, or like Oscar Piastri, you have to be willing to sit out as a reserve driver and then find a drive from there. The danger therein is then competing with other drivers who are coming up through Formula 2 and through the ranks who might outshine you because you haven't been in a car all year long.
During the course of this trial and rising through the tiers of racing, young drivers programs can be of tremendous assistance to young drivers looking to build their resumes and graduate from one level to the next and have a route to These programs really can provide young drivers with a road and a path to F1 and provide opportunities to test in F1 cars and gain the kilometers needed to attain a super license. The Red Bull Junior program is a great example of this, and the program gave rise to current F1 stars Sebastian Vettel, Daniel Ricciardo, Max Verstappen, and Pierre Gasly. Daniel Kvyat and Alex Albon are also drivers who rose from the Red Bull Junior program, but Daniel Kvyat is no longer racing in F1, and Alex Albon is back after a year off in Williams. What it takes to rise through those ranks is a dedication and a commitment to your future. Many of those drivers knew they wanted to drive in F1 before they turned double digits. Very few have the opportunity to get that far in sport. Reaching Formula One requires a serious vision into the future and a serious belief in self and a desire to continue to improve. Because of the development of young drivers, it makes sense that the drivers, by and large, are young. The average age of F1 drivers in 2019 was 26 years old. In 2022, the youngest driver is Yuki Tsunoda at 22 years old, and the oldest driver is Fernando Alonso at 41 years old. The age range is interesting simply because of how closely it actually parallels the reality of the F1 viewership. The paddock. On any race weekend, the Formula One paddock, where garages, hospitality suites, and particular teams are, is a who's who of celebrities. On any given weekend, professional athletes, musicians, and actors will be rubbing shoulders with the drivers and the teams throughout the race weekend. These celebrities come to take part in the spectacle, or perhaps because they are friendly with a certain driver. On July 14, 2019, Red Bull Racing partnered with Aston Martin to commemorate the Red Bull team's 1,007th Grand Prix start. To do so, they gave the drivers tuxedo-themed racing suits, a new livery for the car with the James Bond 007 logo on the rear wing, and a shoot with a James Bond-themed series of promo photos throughout the race weekend. This is such a great example of the celebrity of the sport because the race was in Britain at Silverstone, the 1007 start for the Red Bull team. And why not throw a James Bond-themed party? It was just perfect. Daniel Craig, Mel B, Jerry Horner, Stormzy, Steve Coogan, Sir Mo Farah were all on hand to take in the British Grand Prix in 2019. And that doesn't even begin to cover the more than two teams in the paddock. In the history of F1, celebrities have often been seen at Grand Prix as a see and be seen event. For example, when F1 was run by Bernie Ecclestone before the Liberty Media takeover in 2016, he had seriously set beliefs about the role of celebrities in the F1 paddock. To him, inviting celebrities was part of the fanfare, the show, and the celebrity of F1 itself. This is epitomized in a letter uh, detailed on Drive Tribe to then Caterham F1 boss, formerly Renault F1 chief, Cyril Abedabul. The letter read, Dear Cyril, please be reminded that where possible, grid access passes should be used for celebrities, people of note, or as always, really glamorous ladies. This is not so much a sporting matter, but a part of the show business of Formula One. Yours, Bernie. The letter is dated 3rd May 2013. While Bernie Ecclestone certainly believes in the power of celebrity, I do not think that Liberty Media would approach things differently. It is certainly a reason to tune in and certainly part of the big show on any given weekend. There is nothing quite like watching celebrities wander around the paddock as teams ready their cars for the day's race while Martin Brundle, one of the F1 commentators, 
attempts to interview them and ask them about their experiences at the Grand Prix. No matter where racing takes place globally, there are celebrities to be seen at a track during race weekend. No matter where F1 takes us, except during a pandemic, there are any number of celebrities on site during a race weekend. They are there at the invitation of drivers and teams. They are there to participate in the weekend, learn about racing, the cars, the drivers, and just what it takes to win on track. While this may happen in many other sports, it truly adds to the spectacle, the glamour, and the glitz of a race weekend. While the celebrities are one thing on track, the drivers themselves turn into celebrities on and off track at any given weekend. The similarity. There's a really interesting crossover that happens between the world of celebrity and the world of F1. The drivers are not just style icons and racers on and off the track. They are celebrities. They have a packed schedule during the race season and the launch of a new team, a new season, testing a new car, a giant media blitz designed to launch them into the season and create media buzz around the team. In F1, everything is designed to keep the press and fans talking about the teams and their events. Throughout the season, drivers act as goodwill ambassadors not only for the sport, but also for the sponsors of their team as well. No matter where in the world the drivers are racing, save in time of pandemic, there is a wall of people at the track and at the team hotels clamoring to catch a glimpse of the drivers, get an autograph, or take a selfie with them. The fans help to elevate the driver to a celebrity status as well, and on any given weekend, drivers have to be smiling, charming, on form, and willing to talk to any fan and any member of the media that may approach them. As more and more people watch the sport, drive to survive, and get into the series, there are more people who are appreciating that the drivers themselves are a form of celebrity and entertainer. It's amazing to watch the interactions between drivers and fans, and it's fascinating to see these drivers themselves being fashion icons. On and off the track, and no more prevalent than during the coronavirus pandemic, the drivers are truly icons to so many fans. Lando Norris of the McLaren team started streaming his gaming sessions on Twitch during the pandemic. Charles Leclerc partnered with Giorgio Mani to be the face of their new campaign. Lando Norris also designs his own line of clothing. The drivers are getting savvier, much like their celebrity counterparts. They aren't just there to race on the race weekend. They are there to work, build their brand, and develop that brand into the future for opportunities beyond their racing career. On any given weekend, after they jump out of the car after testing, qualification, or a race, they put on their team hat, grab their sponsored sunglasses, slide on their sponsored watch, and head over to speak to various media outlets, all smiles and media coached by PR-based interviews. It's amazing how many similarities you hear between the interviews and how easy it is to pick out the PR speak when you listen to an interview. But it is these interviews, these down moments during a race weekend that add to their value and their celebrity. They help each driver and their team and sponsors to build brand equity. The drivers are the biggest celebrities on track on any given weekend, and it makes sense that they would invite and include other celebrities to the racing festivities. For musicians and actors who are deep in their projects and often away from home, on location on a tour, they understand the stresses of the drivers on the road for 20 plus races in a season with just a short downtime to recover, train, and get ready to do it all over again. All while managing other business interests, new ventures, training, managing family life, 
and getting ready to do it for the next season. The Watches. There is a really interesting crossover that I have noticed in watches and Formula One. In the watchmaking world, independent watchmakers like Maximilian Busser of MBNF, Francois Pauljourn, Ming, Kari Voutalainen need the bigger brands like Rolex, Patek Philippe, Omega, and Audemars Piguet in order to convey the value of the craft of watchmaking to get people started in watches, so to speak. Once the consumer is hooked from one of these larger brands and enters the market, they look around at what else exists and either stay at the level they are at, uninterested in pursuing other watch brands, or they may learn more. As they ask more questions, become more educated consumers, and dive deeper into learning more about watchmaking and what brands are really pushing the envelopes, it leads these consumers to find smaller manufacturers. The big brands and the big groups are really the sponsorship and marketing force in the world. They are the force that is bringing in new consumers to the watch world. Without them, the watch market might not exist. A similar thing happens in Formula One. There are 10 teams in Formula One and every team needs each other. Not everyone is going to recognize the Haas automation logo on an F1 car, but almost everyone around the world is going to recognize the Ferraris or the Mercedes-Benzes of the world. F1 and all the teams in it need those bigger brands like Ferrari and Mercedes to draw fans in. And while Mercedes and Ferrari have immense budgets and can build an amazing race car, you need them to do so in order to do well in the races because it brings in new fans and retains existing fans. Those big teams and their fan bases fill seats at race weekends, buy gear to match the car, and watch the races. And you need people to come and watch the racing. And this parallels the drivers as well. The drivers need each other. As much as they are competition to one another and a threat to each other's careers, they need each other. The drivers need to be the best in the world in order to win routinely. Because when they make a mistake or the underdog wins, it is that much more exciting for a race. When a race favorite has a mechanical issue or just doesn't have the speed on a particular day, and an underdog takes the victory, it makes that victory far sweeter and that race far more enjoyable to patrons in the millions watching on TV. The crossover is apparent to me. Marketing budgets matter. Being able to have broad reach matters. It's actually reaching out to customers and potential customers, bringing them into the conversation that matters. And Netflix, for better or worse, has done that with Drive to Survive and has brought more fans to the sport and continues to draw people in. This has also added to the celebrity of the drivers. Lewis Hamilton winning may be an old story at this point in time, but Lewis Hamilton crashing into Alex Albon in Brazil 2019 and leaving the door open for Pierre Gasly to take second? Now there's a story. The celebrity bestowed upon Grand Prix drivers is interesting. It's almost a double-edged sword. We want them to be invincible. We want them to be larger-than-life characters, and sometimes we are let down simply by the fact that they act like normal humans. But it is that special magic about them that helps them to win on a race weekend, propels them to the podium, and brings us the race drama that Netflix has taught so many to love. Those backstories are common in the watch industry too. 
And it is these same forces that propel watch brands to the forefront of the industry and the minds of collectors. The next episodes of Forward Momentum are going to look at two people who influence the collecting craze and the connection to watches and motorsport. These two celebrities may have done more for two particular watch brands and for motor racing than we care to give them credit for. Join me, your host, Todd Searle, on the next episode as we talk about the kings of cool and the genuine history of watches and motorsport.